Uh, a long time ago in a land far away, uh, after a long day at work, I was on my way home. And I climbed the stairs to my apartment. I opened the door. I turned on the light. I was putting my bag down and taking my shoes off when suddenly I stopped cold. Something was wrong. Something was different. Someone had been in my apartment. My eyes swung toward the TV and the stereo, and they were right there where I'd left them. Everything seemed to be there, but something was just a little bit off. The coffee table was just a little askew. The plant was somewhere that I don't think I had left it. it. Everything just felt a little bit different, a little bit changed. That being said, it's not like I was paying attention that morning to exactly where the coffee table was. It's not like I lived in that clean of an apartment that the coffee table would have been straight in the first place. It's not like I couldn't have moved the plant and simply forgotten that I had moved it. It's not like my eyes are even open in the morning time before I get to my car most of the time. But that being said, something just didn't look right. And still, there was just this feeling. Something was wrong. Something was, was different. Someone had been in my apartment. It was kind of a creepy feeling. As I explored further, I noticed that there was something on my counter. And then I noticed the clue that solved the puzzle. The top of a small paint can was on the counter. And I looked to the ceiling to where there had been some water damage months and months back. And now there was some fresh paint there. Apparently someone had been in my apartment and they were simply there to fix the ceiling. It's, it's strange to see clues that someone has been somewhere when you didn't expect them to be there and you don't currently see them where they are. And yet at the same time, I wonder if this happens more often than we think. I wonder if sometimes our eyes miss what's all around us. I wonder what it would be like to notice more. What if God is really at work all around us all the time and we simply don't see him very well? A friend told me about a sign in their church that says, God is in this place whether you've asked him to be or not. I wonder if God is in more places than we realize, and not just in the omnipresent way of God's everywhere, not that way, but that God is, is working and active and moving in more places than we realize. I wonder what would need to change in us to help us be more aware of God's presence. Which brings us to our series. <coughs> Today we continue our new series on Christian maturity. Not general maturity, not merely being old, because those are different things entirely. In this series, we're talking specifically about growing mature in our faith. Because the fact of the matter is that I don't think we aspire towards this anymore. I don't think anyone longs for maturity anymore. As much as we should, maybe. <coughs> we are still, as the song used to go, Toys are Us Kids. We don't want to grow up, because we're Toys R Us kids. <coughs> Except, isn't it a good thing that we do grow up eventually? Isn't it important that we adult well? Isn't it 
better to be mature, especially in our faith. As I think about the people I know who I would call mature Christians, they all share some of the same depth and character. They seem to weather storms better, partly because that's not their first storm, but partly they've consistently seen God bring them through storms before. They all seem to be more self-sufficient in their faith. In other words, they're more proactive about their faith. They own their own faith more. They're not so reliant on others to keep them moving forward. And that's not to say that they aren't in community. They are. They're actually in really deep community. And that community does bring them forward as well. They, they've learned over time to be connected to other people. And yet, their growth isn't solely based on others. And, and then they all seem to be, and this is the most important for today, they all seem to be more aware of God's presence in their life. That God is a, a present reality. God's not foreign, God's not distant, but God is there with them in, in a different way than he seems to be for the rest of us. And in the midst of that, they stay humble, they continue learning, keep, they keep growing, they help others in their faith as well. My hope is that this is part of who we aspire to be, that our discipline would be steadier, that our perseverance would be stronger, that our faith would simply be deeper. Because I believe that while Christian maturity takes cumulative faithfulness, I also believe it yields exponential results. So we're going to dig deep into this topic, and we're going to do that by looking at the person and the book and the story of Joshua, as we strive to understand not just what Christian maturity looks like, but how it's formed. So if you would, I would encourage and invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Joshua chapter 2. Last week we saw that the huge leadership transition between Moses and Joshua. And we also found out that Joshua, part of this new role, is to not just try and fill Moses' shoes, but to take this group of Israelites, who at best barely pay attention to Moses, and try and lead them into a new and occupied land. I can only imagine this was exciting and terrifying and happy and sad all at once. Joshua. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 24. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. 
Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now she had said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. The men said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord <coughs> in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers, and your, all your family into your house. If anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head. We will not be responsible. As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened. <coughs> they said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Amen. Kind of a long passage this morning, but I want us to walk through it a bit before we start moving forward. Now, the first thing to notice is how incredibly bad the Israelites are at spying. Uh, the first lesson they teach you in spy school, I don't know that all of you have been into spy school before, but the first lesson they teach you if you are going to be a spy is don't let them know that you're spies. It's kind of a fundamental rule of, of spy school. Don't let them know ahead of time that you're a spy. I want to look back at the passage for a moment. Verse 1 says, Joshua sent two spies. Verse 2 says, the king heard about the spies. <laughs> they barely make it into the city before the king knows that they're there. And not just knows that they're there, he knows where they are. How bad do you have to be as a spy that they already know you're there before you've even gotten there? So they go into the city, and they go into the house of a prostitute. And commentators and pastors don't really know what to do with that. 
I've looked. Uh, the way I understand it is that we should think of this a little bit as a cross between an inn and a tavern. Uh, they didn't have those kind of things as such back then. An inn and a tavern and a brothel. Uh, either way, it's where they went. And it's a good thing they did. Because the king's emissaries come to question Rahab and she hides the spies and points the pursuers in the wrong direction. If they had gone anywhere else, who knows what would have happened. After they leave, she goes back up to the spies. She informs them that she knows that their God, she knows of their God, and she believes in him. She knows that God has already given them this land. And she tells them that the people are frightened of the Israelites. And she asks them to be saved. Because I've been kind to you, please be kind to me. And the spies make a deal with her. You don't give us up, and we'll make sure that you and your family will, will live when we come back. And hang this red rope in the window so that we'll know which house to save. And they climb down, they escape back to Joshua, and they tell him the good news that the people of the land are terrified and that God must have already been at work in the land. In brief, that's what happens in our story. But as we try and figure out how this applies to us and, and how it applies to Christian maturity in particular, I want us to start by looking at, at what the spies find. Then I want us to spend some time talking about that red rope for a little bit before we try and really apply it to our lives. So what do the spies find? Quite simply, they find that God has already been at work in the land. As they speak with Rahab, she makes it quite clear that the people are terrified about this army that has just walked out of a desert. The inhabitants of Jericho and the surrounding lands have heard about some of the powerful things that this Israelite God has done, and they're quite certain that this God is turning his attention on them as well. The people are talking. How else does Rahab, a prostitute, know all this? The only answer I can come up with is that the people are talking. That some of the guests and friends and neighbors are all talking about this strange people who escaped Egypt and their powerful God who brought them out. Not only that, as they've talked, Rahab has, of all things, believed. Rahab's faith has grown. She believes enough to protect the spies and mislead the king, both of which would have been punishable by death. Because she can see that the Lord is on the move. That the Lord is doing something. And she wants to make sure she's on the right side. Rahab is able to see the Lord is there. Rahab, when you think about it, makes kind of a strange hero. I mean, in the greater scheme of things, she's kind of a nobody. I mean, she's a prostitute in a city that's about to be totally destroyed. She's doomed. She's not even quite a footnote in history. And yet, maybe God's world is bigger than that. Maybe it's important that in this book that seems to be all about destruction, which we'll talk about later, in this book that seems to be all about destruction, isn't it strange that the first story that's told is about the length that God is willing to go to to save a prostitute from death? how God sent two spies on a rescue mission into a doomed city 
to get her and her family out. In a story that seems to be all about death, the first real story we get is about being saved, about being rescued. And not only that, if you know the bigger story being told, you know that her story isn't actually quite finished even yet because God will make her more than a footnote. She will go on to have a child named Boaz. Boaz will, name, will marry a, a woman named Ruth, another who would have easily been forgotten in history. Now she has a Bible book named after her instead. Boab and Ruth have a child named Obed. They have a child named Jesse, who has a child who is later known as King David. King David's great, 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 great Samad grandmother is Rahab, the tavern owner. And of course, from there, one of David's distant offspring is a man we call Jesus. Maybe God is in the habit of doing more than we could ever imagine. Maybe God has a much bigger picture in mind. And maybe God was already there at work, even though sometimes we have trouble seeing him at work. See, I get the impression that Joshua sent the spies into the land for mostly tactical reasons. Go figure out where the mountains are and where, the, where we, we're going to find food and water. Check out the walls of Jericho. See if there's any weak spots. Should we attack from the north or the south or the east? Or the, is there a better direction that we should go? If we come at them from a different direction, could we surprise them? Is that something possible? Or do they all know that we're already here? And while I'm sure the spies did some of that, what they found was that God had already been there before they ever got there. And more than that, they found that God had already been at work preparing to give them this land. So that's what they found. What's with the rope? What's that all about? The rope they used to climb out the window and, and out of the city to escape becomes the symbol of their promise, of the deal that they struck. It's a reminder. It's a sign that they are to save Rahab and her family when they come and conquer the city. What I find interesting is how this red rope kind of leans back towards another story in the Bible. When God was bringing the people out of Egypt and leveling the plagues on Egypt, God tells the people to put some lamb's blood on the doorpost as a, as a sign of a promise. And then the angel will pass over that house and not destroy it. You see, the lamb's blood doesn't save them. It's a sign that they are to be saved. And they take some assurance from that sign. Just as the rope in our story is a sign that the family inside is also to be saved. Of course, the red rope then leads forward to another story in the Bible as well. Many years later, that same man named Jesus would die and his blood would signify a new promise, a new covenant, if you would. That those under that sign would be passed over by death and instead would be given new life. Again, a sign of God's saving. It strikes me that the rope probably served another function as well. 
one that doesn't get highlighted all that often. Rahab hangs this rope in her outside window in one of the walls of the city so that the people outside the city can see it, so that when the Israelites come, they'll see the, the rope and they'll know, save the person in that house. Not long after this, the Israelites do come and, the, and they put the city under siege. And I get the impression that the walls of this city were huge, tall and thick, in, in all ways absolutely impenetrable. I'd imagine that any army on the outside would recognize just how futile any attack would be. And we'll get to this story in a couple of weeks. But, but the people, the Israelites, spend the first six days marching around the city, following the Ark of the Covenant and the trumpet players, and they do it in silence. Now, for a moment, put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. Think about how hopeless, how helpless you would feel walking underneath these huge, towering, impenetrable walls. Imagine that the feeling of, I'm sorry, Joshua's plan is we're just supposed to walk around the city a couple times, and then we win? <laughs> There's giant walls there. They're, it's not just, they're not just going to fall down. How would we ever win? How, how, what good is this doing? Can you imagine how terrifying it would be to walk underneath these huge, towering, impenetrable walls? How small you would feel. Now imagine walking around that same city, and every time you pass this one part of the, one part of the wall, you see there's a window way up there with a red rope hanging in it. And as you're walking, you remember, you know what, God's already given us this city. You know what? God's already made them afraid of us. God's already won. They know how powerful our God is. And God's already given us the victory. I wonder if that rope wasn't just a reminder for the people inside the house. I wonder if it was also a reminder to the people walking around the walls. A reminder that God had already given them the city. That God had already been where they were about to be. And that God had already done the work. You see, I think that this story is supposed to be a reminder to us as well that God has already been where we're about to be. More importantly, I think that's how mature Christians see the world. They see God all around. They know that God's been at work before they've ever arrived, and therefore they're able to look for what God's been doing ahead of time so that they might join with God in that place, in that time, in that situation. Maybe God has been at work in your family, among your co-workers, among your neighbors, and you just haven't been looking to see how. Maybe God's already been at the grocery store, or the park, or the, your favorite lunch place, or the bar, or even here at church, and we just haven't been looking for him. 
Maybe God has already prepared a victory in a situation that you have coming up, and you can't see it yet, and you don't believe it yet, and that's okay. But that doesn't mean that God hasn't already been there. And maybe more importantly, for most of us, I wonder how we would live and act and respond differently if we believed that he already has been there. If you knew that God had already been at work. I mean, it strikes me, we probably wouldn't let fear get in the way so often if we already knew that God was going to be there. It strikes me that we probably wouldn't let our uncertainty keep us back from acting and acting well. And at the same time, I also wonder, wouldn't we work harder? Wouldn't we prepare better? Wouldn't we want to give it our best, knowing that we're meeting and partnering with God in something He's already been working at? Of course, that's not how I always see the world, is it? At the end of a long day or at the beginning of one, I'm tired. I'm not looking for God. I'm not expecting to see God. I'm not expecting to see that God's already been there. And in that way, I'm a lot like the spies. I don't think they were looking for all that much. And yet they found that God had already been there. Like me coming back to my apartment that night, there were clues that someone had been there. I wonder how we would live differently if we could see those same clues as well. I wonder if we could look for them better. I wonder how we would see our world differently. And that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It wasn't for Rahab. She had to risk her life. She had to realize that God was going to destroy her city even though he also was going to save her family. She had to risk. Yet when she saw that God was at work, she then went to work partnering with God, working with God on what God was already doing. See, here's the thing. God is already there. God's already at work. And while sometimes it's hard to see him, sometimes you may not understand what he's up to, we are still called to seek and to find him and to work with him because God has already been at work wherever you are. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to be more aware of your presence, that you would help us find the clues all around us in the people in the places, in the situations all around us. And that that would be a reminder to us to both not be afraid and yet also to try harder that we might partner with you better. Lord, I wonder if sometimes that's how Jesus saw the world. If he simply was just more aware of the clues all around him. And that's how he knew what to do. It's how he knew to ask for bread and, and fish, and then he multiplied them. Or it's how he knew that this was the time to heal this person or that person. Or to say this word or that word. Or to encourage, or to challenge, or to teach. <coughs> I, wonder if God, I wonder if Jesus simply 
was more aware of the clues all around him. And I wonder if that's part of how he did what he did. Lord, if so, please make us more aware of those same clues. That we might be reminded that you are at work. And that you already have been all around us. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.